Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everybody and welcome to Bilge Pumps episode 91. Yes, we are. We're now nonogenarians and feeling every last uh, podcast of it. You're joined this week by the regular crew. So it's me, Drakinafel, Dr. Alexander Clark, and of course, Jamie from Armored Carriers. And for those of you who have the misfortune to be following us on Twitter, you'll know that me and Dr. Clark were at the Naval Leaders Conference last week yeah. at time of recording. Um, so considering that is pretty much the cutting edge of modern naval thinking policy and some rather interesting technology, as well as, to be fair, a very good catering service. (laughs) I love Seriously, Drac has never been happier. He was going and going, this is going to be an academic conference. I went, I told him there's going to be good food. There's going to be good food. He went, okay, as a joke, I'll wear my bigger trousers. The next day he did wear his bigger trousers. (laughs) (laughs) They, they, They have invented the mini burger but on brioche buns, so I can now eat six burgers at a time and not feel guilty. (laughs) Seriously, he's not joking. He did that. (laughs) So so you're saying it's an academic conference, and yet you're saying that there were no academics there. What what, what is it? Do do we pay our academics? This is the thing that did our minds in, because we were the... uh, There were some academics, including the excellent Robert Dahlstrup, um, from Sweden, who I'm not going to read his paper out, but his paper is entitled A Contrarian Perspective of the High North. The reason I'm not going to read his paper out and discuss it today is because I'm going to invite him on bilge pumps because he's an excellent Swedish academic. He was there to give a wonderful talk about the High North. Look up his paper. You can find his stuff online. He's really good, but we're going to get him on bilge pumps to talk about his view on Russia and the Baltics and that sort of scenario and the actual things going on because he had some really interesting and really pertinent stuff which doesn't always feature through into... I would say more North Atlantic uh, defense analysis of Russia. There's a very interesting view of Sweden's view of Russia when they literally sit quite so close to them versus our view. And it sounded like Sweden had a far more accurate appreciation of Russian actual capabilities prior to Ukraine than most of us did, or at least he did. Well, and now post as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so obviously mo- mostly manufacturers obviously looking to sell stuff to the navies, navies looking to, for stuff they might want to buy from manufacturers, and lots of different um, navy naval staff looking to talk to each other. So, yeah, I've, I don't think I've seen quite as much gold braid in one room before. <laughs> Actually, to quote Drac, he met more admirals in one day than he's met in his rest of his life. Yes. And that was on the first day, and that was the admirals really turned up on the second day. And he was sort of going... Uh, Do we have that many admirals? Well, let's put it this way. We sat down, we're chatting away, and then realised that we were talking to the head of the Swedish Navy. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> we didn't realise we were talking to the head of the Swedish Navy. We also racked up the head yeah, of the Finnish Navy. Yeah, but did he realise he was talking to bilge pumps? So that's the important he thing. did, actually. <laughs> he knew who bilge pumps were. Which in and of itself is slightly worrying. And we got asked several times by senior officers of various countries where Jamie was. Should we be allowed out without Jamie? And we also got, oh yeah, we, uh, before I forget, we also got told that uh, you are the more correct on submarines, apparently. 
Yes, he was saying you're more correct than I am on submarines. He loves everything else I say, but he agrees with you more on submarines than, than he agrees with me. What, what am I more correct than submarines about? Their, uh, uh, this was a, a very nice gentleman. Where was he from? Oh, was it? Was it one, of the one of the Scandinavian navies. It might have been Norway. It, I think it was Norway. Yes, right? yes. Norway, yeah. But we had so many conversations about bilge pumps, it got quite disturbing. For a change. And yeah, before we get into the whole stuff, there was also the thing that really shocked me was the lack of academics there, considering academic tickets were free. And pretty much when I got in contact with these people at the NBL, they first said, Simsek, can anyone come along? Would anyone like to come along? They basically bit my hand off. I signed up me in seconds Drac didn't think he would get in but i said go on sign up you're an academic you do all the work you do as far as i'm concerned you're prefer you 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 qualify as an academic and go see they were very happy to let him in and there were we were the only two academics there now yes it's in farnborough so yes it's not the world's easiest place to get to but it's also not the world's most difficult to get to yes corbett 100 had a conference on in central london which I'm told was absolutely exceptional and was on the Falk uh, was on various things, including the Falklands War. And I do know that was very good. And there were a lot of academics there, but that was by no means all the academics. And I'd made the decision that I was going to the NDL rather than the Corbett one, mainly because as much as I wanted to go to the Corbett 100, I haven't, I keep talking about current affairs as well recently. And I needed to go to the NDL one, I felt, because as an academic, a historian who keeps being asked about current affairs, I should go to these conferences. And I like to go to at least one or two of them a year because you meet engineers, you make a little black. I've come back thanks to Atlas, Innov Atlas Electronic UK, who gave me a little card holder with it absolutely full of business cards. Now, why does that matter as an academic for having current affairs? Well, if I want to talk to Harlan or Wolf, if I want to talk to Adlock, Atlas, if I want to talk to Babcock, if I want to talk about current affairs or even the history at their sites, I need those contacts. I need to know who I got to, who to talk to because it's far easier for me to know them in person. And I got to ask questions of the engineers, of the people who are building those things, of the systems, of the UVs and etc. What actually is the reality? Now, I've spoken to engineers in the past. You know me. I'm I, basically my habit is to. Do, do like my father was told me, go and talk to the people actually building it. And that was the good thing about this conference because it was the actual people who are building it. And I had the great advantage of having Drac with me was that there was another engineer and there was an actual proper engineer, not just a history of engineering who's grown up with engineers and knows engineers quite well, sitting next to me going, yeah, this is the real deal engineer and actually they're talking stuff which makes sense, which I thought they were. But it was good having that extra corroboration. So I was really surprised that there weren't other academics there. And I had sent the email around my colleagues and gone, yeah, do you want to come? And it's a case of, it's part of the disconnect I see. I have to admit that I, I like bilge pumps sort of is, has been getting a bit of praise for dealing with. In that we do try to bring all the sides together. The academics, the industry, the professionals and the people who are interested. And that was the thing. When I was talking with them, because I knew, Jamie, you said, well, I would never be allowed in. Well, I went and had a chat with them there and I've had a chat with them since. And they basically said, oh yeah, 
as long as he doesn't mind following Chatham House rules, which all the speak the talking uh, the talks are under, we would have no qualms about coming in. in. And that was that we were talking to some of the companies, and they're going, "Yeah, well, it's sometimes we don't want to deal with cold calling pre reporters because they don't understand enough, and they just twist our words, and we spend our time trying to educate them." So uh, you sort of think, "Well, hang on, if an actual reporter." They were so happy to have actual academics turning up to talk to. I'm fairly sure if me and Jack rings the, uh, ring them up at all to go, we would like to talk about this from now on, they will not only pick up, they will be very helpful because they know we're interested enough because we came and talked to them there and we've already met them. Yeah, I think it's the same with journalists. Is why. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I try to attend you know, defence science technology um, conferences here in Australia and I do the same thing to the Space Industry Association. Um, not so much just to get a story from those things, but to meet the people so that when a story yeah. comes along, they know me, I know them, and um, they, know you, they know that you're not going to, you know... Um, Do a hatchet job or an ill-informed hatchet or, or, or be completely um, unable to comprehend what they're talking about. So, you know, um, uh, there, there, there's a lot to be said about the ancient art of, you know, meet and greet. Mm. And, um, you know, that's, that's over and above uh, free food for starving academics. Although, yeah, seriously, if my PhD, when my, if my PhD colleagues had realised these conferences were that good for free food, there would have been every single PhD student there within 100 miles. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I did, I told them. I told them. Well, I, turn was... up. I, sent them for, I, I actually sent some of the photo of, of Drax's six-tier burger he built himself. Mm. Uh, I think the other thing, though, that also helps is that with us being um, sort of the academic historian engineering side, but not affiliated directly with any one particular company or Navy, it means you can have a little bit more of a wider free ranging conversation without them having to worry about giving away some kind of company secret or information to another Navy that might want to take advantage of it. I mean, theoretically, everybody's friends there, but let's face it, everyone wants to get the jump on everyone else when it comes to technology or at least what not what even what not to do so um we, we i guess we, we were about the closest thing to a neutral party as it was possible to get since we had no major financial or nationalistic interest involved which caused actually quite a lot of fun because it meant that people were coming to you were using us sometimes to arrange discussions i think we ended up facilitating oh, uh, we, we were linking up some uh, we would get some of the navies would come up to us go uh sort of just happen to come quietly mention go um yeah there's this we're looking for this but we're not sure who to really go to who's uh, you know anyone sticking out good for you and we uh, and we go yeah i'll go to them go to them and sort of get fact later go oh you were right and a few of the companies come on we're having trouble making contact with how do do you know anything about and we'd and we'd send them in the right direction because we were chatting with everyone and we ended up sort of becoming this almost informal dating service for navies and companies and we're going we should start charging for our matchmaking skills in a second down in the buildings mm. <laughs> <laughs> but no and lots of people were signing up to listen to us and um, going to get some come on and so it brings me to my next question. How many um, retractions does Bilge Punks now need to make after our years of speculation and um, flights of fans? Oh, Surprisingly that's the few. Joke. Oh, good Lord. Seriously, our egos are now ma were massive after day one on the way back. I was driving back and Drac was 
drumming next to me because so many of the stuff we stuff we talk about, people going, we're working on that, we're looking at that, or that's a good idea, actually. We've been sort of considering that. Well, I possibly I couldn't possibly comment on whether or not we're we're thinking about that, or in one particular memorable <laughs> case, having talked about something I won't say exactly what, but something we discussed in the last three or four episodes, let's say. Um I said, yeah, well, you know, you you manufacture this system. This would be very important in this idea that we came up with. And you could kind of see the colour draining from their faces. Like, how <laughs> do got, they know? He got a real, thrill out of, a, a real thrill out of torturing him. But actually, once we started to turn around and explain, we're historians. And mm. we're just looking and using history. The amount of them who, came in, who became quite interested in sort of talking to us about where we think things are going. And they were really quite happy to see people more than just engineering academics, because there weren't any engineering academics actually going around either, uh, that there were some historians going around. We did meet some bioscience people who were, well, they, they were giving a talk as well, weren't they? They were really hmm. nice. They were from South University of Southampton, and they're doing some really, really interesting work. And if people have listened to me on my own <coughs> recent um, video about... Uh, survey ships they will probably get an idea of what those people in Southampton are doing because they are really of us one of the things I have to say I was annoyed every time we went around the stands there was one thing I was looking for and I wanted to meet the sea guardian people of uh, you know the people who are working on general atomic uh, general atomics um, mq9b you know their new drone and the one which is general supposed dynamics. to be yes and supposed to be able to take off from ships, it could well it could take off from from the Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers. There, it's stall capable apparently. And um, yeah, I was really wanting to talk to them. We went by their stand how many times? Because I dragged probably you there about probably, a dozen, a dozen every each day. Uh, 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 yeah. Because we would, because they were in a nice location, we would go past them anyway. But we would go out of our way to make sure we went past them. We never found anyone there, and the actual organisers, very helpful, lovely people, NDL. They were really, really nice who organised it. They went hunting for them for us as well, because they were supposed to be someone there, and they couldn't find them on the site, and they were slightly annoyed by that because they had been trying to do. And we'd want to talk to them because they're selling this thing as basically the fix-all and be-all of everything, and yet they weren't there to talk about it. So if General Dynamics are listening to this podcast, and judging by the number of, <laughs> uh, judging by the number of companies and uh, people who's, uh, who actually did recognise bilge pumps and did, were going, oh, you're, oh, you're Alex and Drac, you're Alex and Drac, you're Alex and Drac. <laughs> there are a lot of people there who are. Ex your person who was supposed to be at the NDL conference talking about your uh, your UAVs was missing in action. I'm not sure who it was, but they're missing in action. And, we'd like and to annoyed talk to me. Someone about those drones. It sounds interesting. It did sound really interesting. Um, I mean, because they've got a bit of ground to catch up on, don't they, with the Turkish? Hmm? They have a bit of ground to catch up with everything, but we did have, actually, I'd say the, the time, this is going to shock you, Jamie. Drax's eyes really lighted up over something. They went absolutely full. You know how Drax can go full, full. Let, let me guess. Next generation boarding armor looks a lot like a suit of um, 
that Middle Ages steel plate? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Hull veins. Drac, please explain. Yeah. Okay, so we're all aware of hydrofoils. Yeah. And we're all aware that, you know, th th there is a certain size limit beyond which it's probably inadvisable to try and um, make an, uh, a ship uh, go and hydrofoil an aqu uh, aquaplane. But um, some very, very interesting uh, gentlemen from a uh, Dutch based company. And this was something I said Julian at the time. and Bruno. What who both it... gave us our cards and invited us to go to the Netherlands if we ever want to go and see the, their yard and what they're yeah. building. Which is another thing. What is it with the Dutch and constantly making interesting naval innovations? I, I swear about, you know, this is an, a, a, a worldwide conference and they there were Dutch industries, companies and shipyards occupying at least 10 to 15 percent of all the stalls. Um, and let's be honest, two thirds of all the German production seem to actually be Dutch rather than German. That's the product of the 1920s and 30s. Don't mention that. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the, 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 the basically what they've realised is something that's actually relatively, relatively um, simple once you come to think about it, which is that yes, there are you know large hull ships when you think about mainline surface combatants and obviously in their case also commercial ships, ferries, and so forth. They don't. Then they're not. You're not going to stick them on hydrofoils and go cruising around at sixty plus knots. Uh, it would be suicide. But what does a hydrofoil do? Well, a hydrofoil generates lift. What and it's also relatively stable um, if it's properly designed. So what they've come up with as a design is basically an underwater hydrofoil section to be mounted in the aft part of the ship, whether directly on the stern or slightly further along, depending on the, the size. And what it does is, is that once you get above about 18 knots, the, it starts to generate enough lift that it does actually lift the stern of the ship upwards and therefore partially out of the water, which reduces the ship's wake, makes it quieter. And because it's obviously having much less resistance while it's in, because less of the hulls in the water also improves, improves fuel efficiency. So... I mean, they, they were quite open about saying the fact, you know, that for a lot of a lot of their initial target market, um, it's no longer a viable option because a lot of freighters and cargo transporters and everything with increasing prices of fuel have started doing slow steaming to conserve fuel. So they their hold speeds have now dropped below the point at which they'd get an economic rate of return. But you're looking at about a 10 to 15 percent fuel efficiency saving and a significant sound and wake reduction on anything that goes much faster than 18 knots. Which then, you know, looking at looking at from a warship perspective, well, what goes faster than eighteen knots? Well, pretty much, you know, frigates and destroyers, unless the frigates doing uh, stop and search anti-sub warfare, and carriers especially like to go quite quick, and they will cost an awful lot of money to run. So, I thought that would be an interesting one to see deployed because one can, of the can you imagine the was... fuel savings of if you don't, especially now with um, oil prices going through the roof? Can you imagine what a ten to fifteen percent uh, fuel bill saving would be for a, a major navy? And also, please note on the carrier construct uh, conversation, when we asked them, had they considered doing anything for the Queen Elizabeth class? What was their response, uh, my dear C colleague? Couldn't possibly comment. 
and went very Cameron. quiet and white. <laughs> yeah, well, and let's put it this way. They've given, one of the things I love was they've given proven results and they've actually shown the results and they tested these holes, they cleaned them up, then they operated, tested them beforehand, then they took to clean them again, put on the new veins, went to put them in operation, did the actual testing. And there are things like uh, a yacht has 25% smaller engines than it otherwise would require to operate at those speeds. 18% uh, more range for another one. 20% um, less RPM at cruising speed for not one vessel, 15% uh, less fuel consumption, and the Holland class, which of course are naval patrol vessels, and the team is, uh, achieved 10% less fuel consumption. The RPA-8, which is a sort of police vessel, 21% less CO2 emissions, which actually is something which we have to think about these days, and it, we should think about really. And the Themis also 20% less CO2 emission, uh, uh, emissions. And this was something, I was sitting there listening to going, this is actually a, one of those things which, and the reason it was making drag size light up so much is we all know engineers love really simple solutions that work for very complicated problems. And this was a simple solution which could solve a whole lot of complicated problems, or rather make a whole lot of complicated problems a lot easier to solve. And it just looked simple and works really well. What's the, what's the physics behind it, Drek? So it, it's, well, I'd say that hydrofoil is basically an underwater wing. It creates lift. Um, we're talking about um, Australia 2 winning the America's Cup here. Yes. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, with a full-on hydrofoil, that creates enough lift to bring the entire hull out of the water, which means that the only resistance to travelling through the water is the resistance of the hydrofoil itself, which is much less than the hull. You only have the slight complication of somehow extending your propulsion system out of your hull further down enough to make sure, you know, you're still propelling yourself. Um but as was found when they started doing kind of hydrofoil attack craft and so forth, uh, like the Pegasus class in the US, that um, there is an upper limit because obviously, you know, if, if you're in a couple of hundred ton patrol craft, you can do a nice sweeping turn. You could get up to 60 knots. So if worse comes to worse, you need to slow down. You just slow down and re-enter the water. That's fine. If you try charging around with a 10,000 ton destroyer, that's not really going to work. Um, so they, the concept is basically we'll exploit the lift, but we're not going to be moving fast enough to lift the entire hull out of the water. And we're not going to put hydrofoils fore and aft. So it's not generating enough lift to take the hull out of the water anyway, even if you were going fast enough. But what it is doing is bringing the entire hull a little bit further up out of the water. So the hull is still in the water, but effectively it's... I guess the short version would be the lift allows you to run the hull at broadly, I would say the equivalent of a light loading position whilst you're actually deep loaded. So, so it affects the hull form. Yeah, it affects the underwater hull form and the wetted area. So there's, there's less hull in contact with the water, therefore less drag, therefore more fuel efficiency. And because you're physically displacing less water, your wake is also a lot smaller, which means you're quieter. Which, which was something which I was really interested in because 
I was thinking, of course, thinking, okay, what would Jamie see when he was looking at this? And I was thinking, Jamie's obsessed with drones and how drones are going to track down ships. <laughs> now, a drone is going to track a ship down visually, mostly by following its wake, because that's going to be a lot bigger than the actual ship. And then you look at, you, then you look at, well, yes, if it's got radar, but if it's active radar, and also the drone's no, no, going to be really close to the right, You can track the weight, what radar these days. As well, <laughs> yes, of course you can. Well, um, I'm not so sure you can with a hull vane. Because if you are, I think it's going to make the wake look a lot shallower, like the ship's a lot further away than it actually is. Because at 15 knots without a hull vane, there is a pretty ferocious wake. With a hull vane... And it's gone down something dramatic. So basically, um, it's a kind of anti-gravity, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there there is a downside, which, as we mentioned, is that if you go below eighteen knots, you don't get the savings because you're not generating enough lift, and you now have a, an object stuck under your ship. So there will be a little bit more drag. There will be a little bit more um, draft as well, I suppose. But every, everything is a compromise. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, personally, I see it as not a huge compromise considering that the potential advantages specifically for military vessels that tend to spend an awful lot more time operating at speed. Mm. Or when you do, you want them to be able to do it better. Yeah. Most of the ships, if we're talking about Albion class, Bulwark class, um, Bulwark, we're talking about all those ships. What is the cruising speed of most warships? Yeah. which is actually at the point at which this gives you a lot of reduction 15 to 18 knots is a really good sweet spot higher than that it also still helps out so this would yeah. probably give you boost in speed without having to boost the power but also would give you a boost in efficiency at your cruising speed which could boost up your cruising speed again think about this Imagine you're going to turn around and say, well, uh, I can for a fixed cost, which is never going to never going to require you putting in more money, going to give you 20% more re cruising range on your new destroyers and your new, your new frigates and your new LHDs, Jamie. If you well, were Australia a government minister, would you take them? The size of our coast? Well, I mean, as yeah. I said, Australia being as big as we are, for sure. Um, not sure what speed our LHDs do with their pods when they're working. Um, but you know, when you when you consider everything else is basically a frigate or above, um, and and our smaller our smaller um, patrol vessels are also required to be quite fast <laughs> and travel reasonably large distances. Yeah, I, I can see them wanting to retrofit them. And if, 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 and I won't say in... which nations we saw dangling around that uh, around there once we started telling people about it, but we saw yeah. let's say a lot of very interested nations going. You what? What? That, that, because there was well, only one who felt that they'd been slightly given the short straw where they were placed. They were kind of hidden. Yeah. Although they they yeah, did make they to. did make very good use of the wall. There was uh, there was an online wall on the on the conference app that allowed people to kind of do a little bit of self advertising. Yeah. Um, which was quite amusing because the it, relatively few people actually used it which was, was both a blessing and a curse because it meant for the people who um, who weren't using it, obviously their, their stuff could get a little bit neglected, but because so few people were using it, if you checked the wall, you'd saw like half a dozen entries, like, oh, I'll actually go and have a look at them. So for the few people who did use it, it actually had a fairly good return. I mean, the reason we went to have a look at it was because they 
they I saw they had put a little post up on the on the apps wall that said, you know, if you want your ship to be faster, more fuel efficient and quieter, then come and see us. I was like, this sounds like an interesting idea. I'll go and have a look. And I did. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing you've got to bear in mind with this kind of innovation is that it it can have it could potentially have an effect that I would say it, it falls under what one of my personal personal analogies, the drac PC building analogy, which is quite fun. Uh, unfortunately, these days it doesn't quite hold true because graphics cards have gone massively up in price thanks to Bitcoin miners and so forth. But yeah. for the past, I know, 20... that's making it very difficult for me to actually rebuild my PC. But for the past twenty or so years, um, I've actually had a little side sideline amongst friends and family building PCs for people because I've always been able to point to things and say to people, you know, well, there if you're going to buy. XPC at Y store pre-built. I look at it and go, well, okay, if that's the performance spec you want, I can give you that performance spec, but for 10, 15% less by home building it out of components. Or if that's your budget, I can give you a much better performing PC for the same money. And I think the with the hydrofoil or the hull vein, it potentially has the same thing of you can either cruise at your existing cruising speed and save a bunch of money on fuel costs, or you can um, increase your cruising speed and still run at the same cost that you're running at at the moment. Now, obviously, the first option is more attractive for people who just want to save money in peacetime, but it actually still has an important function in wartime because whilst you you might not initially think well you know 10 15 percent off my fuel bill is that important in wartime when people are throwing money at you the point is that's 10 to 15 percent off your fuel consumption so if you suddenly find yourself say stuck on the wrong side of the planet and you need to get a force over into the western pacific or the black sea or the baltic or whatever really really quickly your ship has a fixed amount of fuel unless you're a nuclear carrier um, a fixed amount of fuel with a fixed range and so you have this kind of dichotomy of, well, I can either run full pelt across the ocean to get there as quickly as possible, in which case I'll have less fuel when I get there, which means either I'll have less time on station or we're going to have to send a vulnerable tanker out to refuel me. Or I can get there slower, which will then extend my time on station, less, uh, more time before I have to refuel, but I'm not going to get there for another week in it on top of what I might have otherwise had to do. Whereas with this kind of thing, it'd be like, actually, no, you know, pedal to the metal, off we go, and we'll still have a decent amount of fuel for when we get there, which, you know, it's the small logistical elements that could make a huge amount of difference, especially if it's a big face-off, because can you imagine if it's a big standoff when there's very, very itchy trigger fingers, but no one wants to blink first, if you're sitting there quite happily motoring around at 18 to 20 knots with hull veins attached to your ships... Well, you know, week three of the standoff and the enemy fleet has had to give up and go home because they've run out of fuel <laughs> and you haven't. <laughs> it's a good way of force maximization. Um, and honestly, I was sitting there listening to it going, <clears throat> this should not be this easy. That what, where is, uh, what's the catch? And also, uh, I, I started looking up and I did some studies and reading into it. And I thought, well, hang on, the catch must be, it must make it super noisy for anti-submarine warfare operations. No, nope, the Holland class is not super noisy. They're not used as an ASW ship primarily, but they're not super noisy. And in fact, when they have been doing operations with towed array sonar, 
the reduction in wake nor in wake has meant that they've actually been made it more efficient for the towed array. In fact, the towed array starts to work better when it's still closer to the ship. Normally, if you know a towed array so one reason it's so long is you have to get it beyond the wake noise, as well as this reduces the wake noise by a considerable amount, which means the towed array sonar starts to work properly when it's actually still closer to the ship. Which is and useful. And also not as much time. Yeah. So this, I mean, in many ways, this is reminding me of uh, truck aerofoils. You know, um, they're ubiquitous these days, those sort of fins you see stuck on the hood, breaking mm -hmm. the uh, wing before they hit the square block behind them. You know, they only appeared in the 90s. But uh, I think that's a 10 to 15% reduction in, um, you know, fuel usage because of the, uh, you know, the way they um, smooth the airflow. Um, now it's, it's so commonplace, it's a no-brainer. I guess it's one of those um, things that um, everyone will be slapping their foreheads and saying, why the hell didn't we think of this, um, you know, three decades ago? Well, the Holland class are not exactly new. This is what I found interesting. They've been in service for a while. And they've had them for a while. So it's a case of the Dutch have been quietly doing this for a while. And the rest Maybe. of us are sitting there going, why haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, it's, too, it's too practical. It's the 1920s and 30s all over again. No one's taking any notice of the small nations. The Italians and the Dutch were actually really quite cool. We, was, we spent a lot of time wandering around them. Uh, we had a lot of fun with the Swedish companies. Uh, there was an, a UK company which really did attract our attention, and that was um, for Secure. And Drac, do you want to reveal why they attracted your attention? Which one was this? The one which had the very interesting wall art. Oh, yes. Yeah, they attracted our attention because they had a nice big profile picture of HMS Vanguard. And then a Type 45 to illustrate the advances in communications technology. And the fact that they had the HMS Vanguard upgraded with their technology. Mm. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting one because they do secure secure communications um, technology, which is of course a very a very important generally getting communications to and from various platforms and integrating it with the larger combat net. But also even more importantly, because a lot of obviously without breaking Chatham House rules, but an awful lot of the stuff that we heard was concerning the future of unmanned vehicles or uncrewed vehicles as opposed to, to, to say that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you've got a ship, then your your only real worry with communications is your offboard communications, because everything internally can be done by physical lines if you need it to be. But if you are now using large numbers of uncrewed vehicles, whether that be under surface, on the surface or in the air, and each individual vessel is perhaps acting as a mothership or a coordination center for multiple smaller drone vessels, every single one of those vessels is going to be transmitting data. All of that data needs to be secure and it all needs to be properly managed because the one thing you don't want is a data overload where you might, you might have the single most comprehensive picture of the battlefield out there, but no one can make sense of it without 14 eyes and six brains. Yeah, well, does this also mean that um, the upgraded Vanguard is going to be on new Type 83? Oh, that's close. I mean, we are we are going to now revi revise the design of the of the uh, Type 83. So one of the things that this whole conference made me realise was that, to be perfectly honest, I guess this is a little bit of a walk back or maybe a realisation, is that we've talked a lot about drones, but 
up until last week, I was always under the impression that, yes, there is certain drone technology that is working, mostly in the aerial field. And, of course, we've heard about things like wave gliders and so forth. But the impression generally was that the underwater and surface drone fields were probably more in the first generation experimental phase. So kind of like it's the 1850s, if you think about ironclads, that kind of phase. Uh, it, it's about to mature, but it's not quite there yet. Then we both heard and saw everything was at this conference, and I'm like, sitting at it there going, yeah, actually, this is more like 1863, 1864. You know, the first, the first generally combat capable ah. USVs and um, UUVs are out there already. Um, they're being marketed by people who can prove that they work. Okay, they haven't seen active combat yet, like some of the aerial versions have. But they're certainly a heck of a lot more advanced and a heck of a lot more numerous than I think we, we'd certainly appreciated up until this point, which then means that, you know, the, the Type 83 paper that we're writing at the moment had more looked at, well, it'd be nice to have some kind of drone capability in the future, so we'll include a multi-mission bay, but the priority was for helicopter operations because that was the current thing. Whereas although helicopter operations and obviously future UAV operations are still going to be important with the fact that UAVs are generally more compact and the fact that USVs and UUVs are considerably more advanced, we're going to be reconfiguring the aft end of the design so that instead of having significant flight facilities, almost to the level of a small carrier's worth of helicopter flight facilities, we're going to downgrade that to a mere two or three destroyers worth of flight capabilities in exchange for a much, much larger drone bay, especially with, um, was I think it was Atlas Electronic. Yeah, it was Atlas um, Electronic. The people, I've got all that stuff. Yeah, they had they a, just... a they had a very impressive. Basically, it's a kind of a a motorized automated rib, or slightly larger, but that kind of layout of vessel. I don't. Basically, it's not actually a rib. It's a solid HMS, ship, but... If you look up HMS Magpie, mm -hmm. which is the Royal Navy's latest. Um, survey ship the inshore service uh, inshore hmm. and coastal water survey ship that is built by the same company they can make that ship an uncrewed vessel they can make that ship so it can have podded weapon systems put on it yeah and this was the thing that the, that is 37 tons coming your way 18 meters long that is not exactly a small threat for you to think about. And it's also not exactly a small threat for me to accommodate on a ship. But here is the thing, because I was sitting there having a discussion with them. And it started me thinking of, and I'm jumping in here because I know where Drac's going to go. So I'm going to get my point in quickly because then Drac can build his one based off it, off it. My thought, and I've said this before in a second, that the future would be task groups of ships built around a crewed ship with the other ships being uncrewed. I had been saying that thinking we were about 20, 25 years away from that point. I think we're 10 years away from that point, and I think we need to start getting ready for it because I think we need to start coming to the realisation that captains of ships are going to be task group commanders. Whether you call them a task group or a task unit or whatever you call them under NATO standardization, they are going to be task group commanders. And you're going to have a real problem because I can see people going, well, we can control these ships back from the UK. Yes, you can, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
because yes, you might have all the controls sitting in Northwood in the UK and you can micromanage those ships from the UK. But if that's a task group protecting a convoy with sea conditions, et cetera, and the individualities of all the convoy, you need to let the people on the, uh, people are at the, on the site, on the, uh, in natural train actually command their ships because that will be a task group. Yes, you will have a crude ship at the center of it. Yes, it might be a Type 26, it might be a Type 83, it might be a Type 31. It doesn't matter what it is. It will be a crude ship, but its crew will exist for two functions. One, to keep their own ship running and two and fighting, but two, to keep all those uncrewed vessels functioning and fighting. And honestly, you need to start thinking about having ships which can repair and reload and rearm these ships. And it... Again, we're not talking almost Bay class memberships. We're talking you're going to need something which actually can get this vessel inside a relatively stable space so you can take off the pod and put back on, change the pod. And it's going to be part of a task group. It's going to be task group command. So you're almost going to be changing the dynamics of a ship from the captain being in charge of their ship to the captain might be the senior officer on the ship and might be in charge of technically in charge of ship but pretty much they're going to have to leave their second in command to run their ship and also to watch to run the ship because they're going to be have to have a staff appropriate for it or included in the cic they're going to be running a task group they're going to be a task group commander with all these other little ships which are uncrewed around them as part of their operating battle sphere and we are not talking about something which is not going to happen soon because they were talking openly about 18 meter ship and that put me straight back in the 1910s, 1950s, 1910s, 1905s, when people were talking about 13, 13 and a half inch, 14 inch guns, while they're working on 16, 18 inch guns. We know that. So they're talking openly about an 18 meter ship. What's the betting they're building a 25 or working on a 25, 30 something meter ship? Well, the thing the thing is about the with the, the current offering, they've kind of got, as Dr. Clark mentioned, the 10, 15, 20 meter range vessels of varying sizes. And I'm somewhat more attracted to the ships in the 10 or boats, I guess, maybe in the 10 to 15 meter range, uh, because that kind of goes on to what we were looking at with the type 40, uh, the type 83 design. In that, because as I say, they're, they're not ribs because they're not inflatables, but they have that kind of design where you've got kind of whole pontoons running down each side um, and a big void space in the middle. And the modules can be lifted in and out and they can be lifted in and out because effectively you've got the automated hull and the entire module, whether it be a mine warfare module, a surface action module, a missile launcher, a sensor, whatever, just drops in and out. It's a self-contained unit. So what we were thinking, or I was thinking at least, was, um, you know, within your multi-mission bay with a launch capability out either, either side and storage areas below as well, you could have a half a dozen, a dozen plus of these things all nicely stacked and stored together. And then maybe up in the ceilings, taking a riff off of um, World War II US carriers storing spare, spare aircraft up there, you could store multiple of your different modules so more modules than because they take up less volume more modules than hulls and then you can just turn around and go okay um you know we're entering a high threat underwater environment where there may be enemy submarines and there's definitely some mines you know okay i want a dozen mine sweeping and anti-submarine 
USBs out there now. Press a button to, and... I have to say that uh, when, when you talk about modules, mm-hmm. yeah, it's as if a, a dozen LHDs suddenly cried out in horror. <laughs> and, we're, and we're silenced. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it's. it's but it gets, not, it, it gets it, these, worse unlike, when you realize sorry, that the I, South I, African LHD Navy is mean, already yeah. deploying this. Yeah. The South African Navy already has this system in service with those modules, with multiple modules, with multiple ships. Or, or multiple mm. Yeah, I was going to say, un- unlike the LCS ones, these ones actually work. And they're in service. Yeah. So you, you uh, if you're on a Type 83, which let's face it, would be a big capital unit. You know, you don't have to risk the Type 83 itself. You just go, right, fly my pretties and out go a dozen, like, let's say, eight MCM configured vessels and four ASW configured vessels. They're all running their lovely automated sweep of the underwater threat. And then when they're done and maybe the enemy's a bit annoyed that you've punched a big hole through their lovely great minefield and they decided, actually, we're going we're gonna to send some... Uh, some of our local response craft to try and deal with you in a in a surface action. By that point, your your USBs are back aboard, and you're just okay. You want to play that game? Okay, let's put some um, some some surface cannons, some thirty millimeter units, or something like that, or short range missiles, etc. With a with a radar or two, send them out again, and off they go. They form a little picket screen, and now once again, your big shining capital ship is not at risk because the enemy has to cross the picket line first. Sure, they're somewhat easy targets, but if even if they do, even if some of them do get taken out, they'll probably take out a bunch of the enemy with them, and it forces the engagement to occur to start at a longer distance, which suits your single vessel much better because then you can just salvo off. Uh, your own missiles beyond probably their effective range of strike back and and then and you're you're golden and then worse comes to worst if the enemy decides actually right this is getting really annoying we're going to send in a big airstrike full of you know bombers armed with heavy missiles and so forth well if you're in a type 83 you've already got more than enough missiles to defend yourself but why waste ammunition when you can send you can recover your surviving usvs bring out a few more holes from within within your your storage and now you can stick a bunch of jammers and decoys and or CRWS short range or short range um self defense missiles and reestablish your picket line again now as a uh, as a basically a giant decoy dash short range defense line which will massively decrease the n- number of incoming that you have to deal with and this is the point I was getting with the large ones is I see it if I was looking at a Type 83 design, and this is well, this is the discussion me and Drek are currently having at the moment, is I think you would be carrying, especially if we go with a trimaran design, which we are considering, I think you'd be carrying two of the larger vessels in the 25 meter to 30 meter range under each wing of the trimaran, and you'd have those drop down because they're what you sort of need for central uh, central ocean operations, especially in the South Atlantic. They're big enough that they can do that. But you'd be carrying absolutely dozens of the smaller ones inside the hull. And you could deploy and mix up the groups as, as you needed, and you could fit them out as you needed. And this is the thing. We've been talking again about the issue of resupply at sea, right? Of rousing missiles. Well, here is the thing. If you're missile modules our missile modules are containerized they can be transported across from a resupply ship put into this ship loaded into their picket ships so you're not going through your own expensive missiles which means you've got your missiles for if anything breaks through that's where the ship's own missiles are for but that's if they break through so you solve the replenishment at sea issue for the short for especially for short range surface to air missiles 
you know, what I'm the, the image I'm getting now for next generation um, warship is, you know, those uh, French pre-dreadnoughts, the ones with the very very fat waists. Can you just see that void being filled by a detachable hull on the side? Hmm. You know, form, you know, no, look, we're you, not getting into this form, too much because you have form-fitting um, packs on um, uh, you know aircraft these days to, to give the F-16s and F-15s extra range and extra capabilities. Conformal drone form packs. Conformal <laughs> drone packs on uh, the side of your um, French Breton, and mm. um, uh, it's all of a sudden you, you know, you've got a, um, a very different-looking ship. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 not entirely out of out of the question. I mean, the other thing which kind of ties into something else that me and Doctor Clark were discussing would possibly be, um, much as currently it's probably got a little bit of a knock against it thanks to the latest series of issues with the LCS, um, but trimaran hulls, yeah. um, mm. most mostly on the basis of not so much using the outer pontoons for much other than stability effectively our idea was you have your mono hull your mono hull is completely self-sustaining stable etc etc but unto that you add a self self-supporting set of pontoons one per side and they basically exist for two purposes one technically is a bit of ablative armor if something does actually get through your defenses uh, because you can just jettison them. They're not an integral part of your ship systems. Um, but secondly, just as basically mass storage. So maybe each one would have a, a, a folding a folding crane derrick um, built into the upper part of the pontoon. And then... Yeah, well, so, well it depends what you're using, um, what kind of drone you're using. But yeah, effectively just giant cargo pods. So you can, uh, you can stock them stock them up with lots and lots of inert drones or, or modules for drones or both. And so you've got your sort of central assembly command and control feature on your main, on your main vessel. And if dash, when you start to run short on them, you're just like, okay, bring up the next set of drones <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. And yeah. And then as I say, if, if worse comes to worse and something does break through the defenses and come after you, well, there's a decent it's chance it might take out a pontoon at which point you've lost a few hundred million in pontoon and drones, but the ship itself is still able to fight and no one's died. It's a conformal drone pack. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yours is just a, a uh, trimaran pontoon. <laughs> it's a slightly <laughs> more mine, detachable mine, variant. Breton look a bit more, look a bit more um, seaworthy. Mm. Mm, yeah. But no, it was, um, it was really interesting talking with them and it was really interesting working through some of the things with the people on the other sounds. Drac also had fun because, um, he basically turned Raytheon into his uh, personal um, we're going to work out hood scenario. And even the port, the very nice German gentleman, Bernard, who was there, who was really lovely, um, had to help out with him and Rob working out the exact realities of hoods turning and what was going on. Yeah, this was Raytheon, the radar specialists. We were using their radar screen and their staff to work out the hood and it did help that the main guy we were talking to was an ex-Royal Navy navigation officer. Who so was you know great fun doing it and winding <laughs> up his German colleague. But you know, it, uh, this is this is the fun thing. This is and uh, this is why 
I love going to things like this is meeting historians, serving naval officers, obviously not so many historians apart from the two of us there, but, you know, events like this where you can meet, where you can meet. We've been invited to Desi, apparently. So Uh, so you can meet what I, you call sort of the the proper professionals, you know, the serving naval officers, the, um, the engineer, uh, engineers and stories, people who do this for a living. The people who are paid to know these things, and if they get it wrong, it, there's very major consequences. And, you know, to be fair, when I was on my trip to America last month, I had a similar experience with quite a number of serving or ex-US military personnel who, again, they know what they're talking about a lot more than random commentators on the internet. And um, it was it was absolutely fascinating because this now makes, I think, the third or fourth navigation officer or navigation trainer i.e someone who trains all the other navigation officers that i've spoken to who have been serving in a major western navy in the past two months and every single one of them as soon as i've explained my theory as to how hood was lost has confirmed that yes in fact physics is a thing and you know when a bow wave forms a trough also forms it does not go away there's a relatively small chance that the particular individual in question is listening to this podcast, but just in case you are, that you are, please let it be known that, you know, the people whose lives depend on navigating their, their ships around and they are navigating very large warships. Don't agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. Physics exists. Physics has exist. Physics will always exist. So yes, a trough will form debate as to exactly how deep it is obviously that's a separate matter but you know that's fun thing and secondly no when you push a ship's rudder over the ship does not immediately go in the direction you pointed it in um as one one um officer very kindly put it that's saying that oh yes well i've i've been on a ship and i put the rudder over and the ship immediately turned he said that's how to say i've never been on a large ship at sea before and had anything to do with navigating it without actually explicitly saying it because inertia is it also a thing <laughs> um you put the wheel over there will be a delay and if you're in a very large ship going at very high speeds especially if you have an especially fine length to beam ratio like oh i don't know a uh, 45,000 ton battle cruiser going at 28 to 30 knots. Um, there will be a considerable delay between putting the wheel over and the rudders going over and the ship actually complying with your wishes with the, with the additional fun part of the fact that actually the ship, a large ship um, will heel inwards in the direction of the turn um, whilst it's still going in a straight line because the rudders have gone over before it actually starts turning and when it starts turning it does the one of the things that people say characterizes a ship which it heals outwards um he and was so t- happy hearing that he almost mm. collapsed on the floor it was quite funny to watch his face he was literally yes. giddy it was going so how what i want to know is mm. well, if you're allowed to tell me yeah. how did raytheon's um simulation help you oh uh, well the, this this uh, screen was something i actually thought was a very good idea because um they had the full script. They yeah. had the full. This is the other thing you get it's, to see. It's an integrated- they had the full quick kit yeah. and allowed us to muck around mm-hmm. on it. So if yeah. if you imagine, uh, if you, I don't know, maybe five, ten years ago, there was those ideas of gaming tables. You know, kind of about the size of a large coffee table or a small snooker table. Um, with electronic screens. And they've never really taken off in the computer gaming community because, shockingly enough, very few people play games where they want to be doing this all the time. Um, 
but sorry, viewers, I just realized I just some this, I think visual you won't understand. I basically just flail my hands out like a giant squid. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you say squid, I was thinking more flamingo dancing, but okay, possibly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, <laughs> it did look sort of like didn't it, Jamie, it looked like, yeah. you know, but they, they've, they've never, they've never taken off in the gaming community. But if you, and, but this is what the thing is, basically a, a big electronic screen, touch sensitive, uh, big table made into a table. Now you might think, well, what, what's that got to do with the price of bread? Well, the thing is the CIC-OpsRoom-whatever your Navy wants to call it, basically where all your sensor input is put together, is in the heart of the ship. Why is it in the heart of the ship? Um, mainly because in World War II, when they started building um, CICs into ships, they decided that they were going to put it deep in the ship because all the stuff was very delicate, very sensitive, and at that point, very heavy, because it was all electromechanical and later valves. And so it had to be deep in the heart of the ship, partly to protect it from um, incoming damage and shockwaves, partly protect it from itself, and partly just to keep it safe generally. So CIC moved down. That's not the ideal place for it. The first CICs or ops rooms or whatever they, you, you call them, um, for example, Admiral Lee, when he took command of USS Washington and it had freshly installed radar, obviously the North Carolina class had not been designed with that. He actually gave up some of his Admiral state rooms immediately behind the bridge and had them converted into a proto CIC. So all the radar screens and things there. If you go to Belfast, you also find an Admiral made mm. that decision. Mm. So you find that's actually a far more useful way of doing things because it means that if you want to know what all your sensors are telling you, you take a six steps backwards, you can find out, and go back to the bridge and continue commanding. But with a CIC, you know, seven decks down under a set of armor, you can't do that. You have to be in one place or the other. And that's the conundrum that modern naval officers face. You know, if you want to see the full sense of fusion that you've got going, you're down in the ops room or CIC, and thus you can't actually see anything about what's going on visually immediately around you. Or you're up on the bridge and having to rely on phone links and an incomplete picture of what's going on. So neither option is particularly great. What this, or the, or the offering that Raytheon had, is effectively an integrated sensor board um, where, yeah, you can still have your CIC or ops from deep in the ship for survivability or stability or whatever other reasons you want to give, but you can present the full picture of what that's offering, either as a combined picture or as of multiple tabs, on a thing that can then be fitted on the bridge. So the captain can now be up on the, the bridge. Yeah, basic, basically I, an electronic chart if, table with extra features. So you can... If I was going to describe it it's like if you have you played supreme commander mm -hmm. those games are those games yeah it's like that so it's if you have played that game if you scrolled out it's like that mm -hmm. you've got all the symbols on the map and you can all the device and it's really really good especially i, I would say probably supreme commander 2 it's most like but um yeah it was really really quite useful and again this Feeds into the, the thing about the U, U, the UVs, the USVs, the UAVs, task group command for captains. Especially if they're in confined waters, they're going to be wanting a bridge so they can do visual inspection of things. If it's a close range and try and check things themselves. Having that there, along with a load of v, feeds showing you what the various uncrewed assets are seeing on the back of the bridge, 
would be absolutely freaking amazing. Although you might need to start calling that the ops wall and mm -hmm. having the other CIC down, uh, uh, sort of having some name for it, because that'll be so useful that they will, you'll have to drag captains away from it because they'll be able to control everything, see everything from their bridge. And then the CIC becomes more of a place of data, uh, data processing, having the team to store it, having the team to actually, you know, prepare the stuff. The thing that I find most disturbing here is they had HMS Hood loaded into it. Mm. Uh, it's amazing what happens when you ask very nice people to do very nice things. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... They a, were very, very nice people. I think it's a very good idea because, it, as I say, it basically brings back the level of situational awareness that someone like Admiral Lee identified as being necessary without having to build, you know, an entire wing of an advanced electronic suite high up in your superstructure. And to be perfectly fair you're probably actually more survivable as the captain these days on the bridge because the whole point of putting, a, apart from the weight issues, the whole point of putting CIC deep below the armor deck on the old ships was to improve its survivability. But think about it. One, these days you don't have an armor deck. Um, and two, as we've seen from recent events, well, actually, to be honest, events going back as you know, far back as the Falklands, Anti-shipping missiles of various flavors really like diving deep into the hull of ships, which is exactly where your CIC Optrum is going to be, and you ain't stopping them. Whereas usually the superstructures, at least in, unless or until the ship catches fire, are still there. So actually, if you're the captain, being on the bridge is probably a very survivable option these days. Um, so it's kind of... I I personally think it's an absolutely fantastic idea. It should be rolled out fairly fairly quickly if if uh, they want better situational awareness. Plus, you get a nice basically idea. installing a large TV on your wall. So honestly, mm. it's not going to be that floor. difficult, mm. or, or on the floor or on a table. It's not that not that I'm difficult. Like, if no. you, if Can I get one on Amazon? Unfortunately, no. But maybe if mm. you could talk very nicely to Raytheon, they will I, give I, you. I love I love to be able to play civilization. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'd just love to have a 65-inch giant touchscreen. <laughs> I think, it, that, and that's the baby one. I think they had one up, which they said they, they could do it well, they said to it, 120 it can be, inch. Yeah, it can be scaled. So you can, you can, it can be scaled to have multiple screens or, or more resolution, higher detail or whatever. Um, about the only thing I can think of is if it's going to be on the bridge and officers are going to be standing long watches, the, the final deployed iteration must have deployable cup holders on the side. Otherwise, you're going to end up with coffee stain, <laughs> ring stains all over things. It's like, is this, is this our radar shield or was this, is this Yeo Yeoman Bates's coffee? <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. What else did you see there that you're allowed to talk about? Oh. I saw a dry suit I really want. He's probably going to get the dry suit. Because yes. basically, uh, you know, we're doing this because th this guy, Dracus, you know, is very, very um, bash, is quite sort of reserved coming forward. He doesn't sing his own praises. So I'd hear him talking to things and people going, oh, YouTube, da, 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 da. and I'd sort of go, yes, this is, he's Drakenafel. He has 350,000 subscribers on YouTube. And suddenly they'd change. And dry suit company were going, well, perhaps we can work something out for you, Mr. Drakenafel. We do like you, Mr. Drakenafel. And um, yeah, that uh, he found really nice suits. He also, uh, speaking of underwater gear, found a um, <clears throat> diver module 
that would have had a lot of new from water, which he'd really, really have liked. Really, really wanted. I want to work. Please explain, Greg. Um, right, so uh, let's think back. Which which ones? Do you remember the, the James one? Bond film Moonraker? Yep. Uh, I think it was Moonraker. No, Moonraker's the one with the space shuttles. That's right, yeah. Thunderball, where the Vulcan cra- is diverted and crashes into the ocean with a nuke on board. And there's a big underwater fight scene, implor- slightly implausible underwater fight scene with lots of harpoons and knife fighting between like Important. US Navy SEALs, you, SEAL you teams one, 1 through 15 and Spectre. You know the one I'm talking about. I was going to say implausible. How how can any um, Bond movie be accused of being implausible? True. I mean, I'm fairly fairly impressed that they, the way they pulled off the filming of that particular scene. But anyway, you know the the, the scene I'm talking about. And a bunch of them are riding in on basically the equivalent of underwater jet ski pods. Basic propeller um, and engine that everyone hangs on to so they can run around underwater without, and you see them in modern diving as well. Um, so this one was a more advanced version. So whilst a lot of the ones that are still around now, they have a sort of a, a regular propeller, maybe with a shroud around it to stop you being cut to pieces by your own propulsion pod. Um, the, these ones were very sleek. Um, funny you mentioned conformal, because basically you have a conformal diver. It's shaped so the diver slots in. Um, and they use pump jets rather than propellers. Uh, and they have uh, sort of, and the re- the interior is just full of basically a bit couple of big motors, a ton of lithium ion batteries, um, and the idea is you you can obviously take combat divers long distances underwater very quietly because that's one of the main advantages of the pump jet over a propeller, even a shrouded one, um, and yeah, it looked really really cool. And then it turns out they can only sell them to the military, but they do have a civilian <laughs> wing, which might be able yes. to do him, so do, do him a deal. But no, I really like the dry suit. The dry suit features are just like, yeah, I can buy basically a military spec combat dry suit that's flexible and tough, not made of neoprene, which will rip at the first opportunity. Um, And I also found another company that makes rugged laptops, which I recognized from having been aboard a couple of Royal Navy warships. And I did ask them, they can operate underwater. So in theory... Once I've gotten my scuba certification back up to spec with my full spec dry suit, so I'll be quite happy and cozy and warm. If I also get one of these rugged laptops, I could take and a powerful enough light, I could technically live stream from a German wreck in Scapa Flow. Having said that, you I'm know, not entirely sure what I'd be saying other than. <laughs> need to get the special headset with the mics. Yeah, I might have to get a full face mask or something, but. It's a possibility, and you know, yeah, you know, eat, eat, yeah. eat that, major major documentary filmmakers. You do all your all your footage, <laughs> and then do post editing. I'm going to be doing it live. <laughs> Can you imagine the questions of the, the YouTube's question scrolling? It's like, hey, Drake, what's this thing? It's like, I don't know. Let's pick. Let's let's touch it and find. Oh, it's the magazine, right? Put away. But the same company were very happy to help me with my sea kayaking needs so i've got mm-hmm. a new bag on the way to me and a few other things which they helped me uh, help me pick up because my bag ha- unfortunately my um my waterproof bag which i tend to uh, tend to put my stuff in for has been um corgied mm, so it's not so waterproof anymore no currently not waterproof at all 
But I had a chat with them and I went, hey, you know, I actually have one of your bags. I'm not going to reveal how I got it, but maybe one of my friends just said, we're not using this anymore and chucked it at me. Uh, I, I, I need a new one. I don't want to go and hassle my friend because he's currently busy. Um, can I get one by a more traditional purchasing means? And uh, yes, they have allowed me to, and I have got one coming from when I go kayaking. <laughs> Uh -huh. I am, however, though, not going to be live streaming while kayaking because kayaking is my haven place and my space where I go to have peace. So no, Just don't, no don't live take streaming. corgis with you. Um, I am going to be taking corgi. I am going to be taking corgi and poodle with me. I have the two seat kayak picked out. I have their little life jackets, and uh, they are coming with me. Uh, this won't the be the first thing. time I have taken the dogs with me kayaking several times in the past. Um, these two corgis never been. But uh, Poodle actually went when he was younger and he really loved it because he basically sat in the boat and woofed at birds and <laughs> came ashore with Papa when Papa went to the pub. Because Papa go. goes on a coconut steak tour of the coast of, uh, coast of Cornwall. I've been out a few, a few times myself in a, in a kayak with um, my father's um, Cadillac and Charles Spaniel sitting quietly in the little... Um, Contain pods on the. They love it. They, they have a they, great they, fun. They feel important. They feel important. And they're the best companion you can have when kayaking because they never talk back or disagree with where you're heading or try to actually row uh, or try to actually paddle as well when they really can't paddle in sync or in time or do anything. Indeed. So, anything else that needs to be said about this uh, conference? Um, shame um, on BAE for not showing up. Yeah, they put they basically yeah, I mean, put they do put they up need a, to? I mean, don't they have to spend every contract under the sun wrapped up? They put up a giant flat screen TV and called it a stand. That's not very impressive. We do have four builders who we are going to be talking about. We had Damon, who were there. Dar they were Darman. We Darman. We can have a lovely chat about their stuff. Harlan and Wolf were there. Yay! They were lovely, very friendly. Gave us key rings. Mm -hmm. Um, we like hearings. Uh, we had, of course, Babcock there talking about the Arrowhead 140 and various other things of the variations of Type 31. And um, that ship, the more you learn about what Babcock are actually doing and what's in there, the more you wonder why small, more small navies aren't yet buying it. And you think probably are because you start talking to them and they start go, they go very quickly go, ah, we couldn't say, we couldn't say, we couldn't say. And I can give you, Jamie, think of a list of small navies we've discussed who need to start purchasing new ships on bilge pumps. And we basically, they said they couldn't say for the whole list. New Zealand? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they couldn't say. Right. Well, of course not. I mean, yeah, commercial confidentiality during negotiations makes perfect sense, especially when it comes to spending other people's money. And also, I would like to point out that the Babcock people were spending an awful lot of time chatting away with the Atlas people, the people who are the the UUV, uh, the USV people we've been talking about. I mean, those stands spent a lot of time together. Did you also notice that, Drac? Mm. Yeah, they, every time we were in one of the socialising, they seemed to be all together chatting away. Can't think so why. Which of those three ships caught your eye then, Drac? Oh, there's another one as well, NVL, who were lovely and supplied us with a gold ducky. Yeah, they're the Germans. <laughs> you guys are so they gave easy us a board. gold rubber ducky. Mm -hmm. you guys we are, are so now in there for all. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, Harland and Wolf, they're 
Belfast yards have a massive historical implicate set of implications. There's so many ships were built there, but to be honest, also the Devonport yards um, as well. Mm-hmm. Harland Wolf, of course, mm-hmm. now own um, oh, Appledore. Appledore. So yeah, and they were talking about that, and we've got the, the good also, thing about we also discovered. Ones... Sorry, we, we've also uh, discovered uh, that some of them have archives of stuff that are just sitting there. In and rooms. they've invited us to go and look at them. Free sorting. We, yeah. we provide free sorting. We get free access. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they've been very nice. Some of them have already emailed me to chat away and go, would you be able to free to come back and, uh, when we're sort of, we're here? And I, I can send you free redbacks and, and uh, funnel webs, if you like, um, it, it, to, to put the um, armored carriers higher up on, on, the, on your list when you go there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, but the thing that's interesting again is again who wasn't there. As I said, BAE wasn't there, and I n- know they think they have everything sewn up. But the thing was, ministers actually were there, and senior civil servants and senior naval officers were there, not just senior civil servants and naval officers of the current senior naval officers, etc., who'll be going to be the senior naval officers for the next twenty odd years. There are a lot of captains and commanders walking around that rank. And they were making friends with the people there who were making friends with them. They were making, they were chatting with them. They were learning from the sort of, and when you start to look at things like, if I was looking at NVL, for example, right, you never really, you don't really hear about them much. But actually, when it comes to building the ships for the German Navy, it's their yards which do a lot of the actual building. It's their yards which do the actual construction. There are lots of companies which will stand up and say, oh, there's a, a Daman ship or a this ship or that ship. The yard which actually builds it is NVL. You need to have a relationship with them. And they were there going around, as I said, with their golden duckies being incredibly friendly. Um, Daman and me had an interesting conversation about the looks of their ship. They did try and defend their frigate. Uh, Drac well, they, did say, they, be... did, they did say it was not the final, that the CGI was not the final version. Yes, they were very <laughs> affirmative that the CGI okay. so, was not the final. Uh, basically, did you, did you whip out your after we'd been going on language? about it between us for about <laughs> 10 minutes at them, they basically said, it's not the final version, stop crucifying us! you gotta, you got to whip out your pencil, Drac, and give them a, a, a new look. Yeah, I just said, just suggest that maybe firing CRAM exhaust directly into your VLS systems probably wasn't the best of ideas. Um, which I think they appreciated. I th- I I got I got the sort of the between the lines impression that a lot of the um, the CGI was more a kind of the ship will have this 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 and this weapon systems, and they'd given it to someone who was perhaps better at CGI than. Um, weapon placement architecture. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah but, but unfortunately, though, sometimes, the... sometimes those ships get built. Yep. <laughs> um, but speaking no, of the... which, um, so you know, who do we take the um, Type Twenty Six replacement contract to? Must we give it the um, the uh, attack class submarine treatment? You've got no other options. This is the thing. If you want to get a Type 31 style frigate, you have got lots of options. But we were looking at it, okay, you can go get Constellation class if you want, but you're going to have a fun time trying to crew them. 
which is honestly the vibe I got there. And it was kind of interesting because talking with, of course, it's under Chatham House rules, so we're not allowed to attribute this to anyone. But talking with the people I was talking from Canada, from Australia, the impression you get is the Type 26, it's not their, cho- the, the, uh, it's not necessarily their choice. It's the only choice in town for a Navy which is looking for ASW capabilities, which are that up to date and going to be that primary as part of their skill set, but with that crewing requirement. And why are they trying and to that's the reality. Warfare destroyer? Well, the reason the Australians are selling it to an air warfare destroyer, and I had this frank, I had a <clears throat> very frank discussion with one of your counterparts, um, one who actually I, I might have sent a picture of it because he's a fan of yours, Jamie. <laughs> then yeah, Jamie has fans, and they were saying we were, they wanted to take why our picture they, of us and send them why to the him. Hell would they? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and basically the point was going, well, um, we've been told we're only going to get one extra class of escort. And the thing is, we needed more uh, needed more air defense ships. And this is our problem. We are the only uh, the only class in town they have the only class they have to, they're going to build service project they're going to have is the Type 26. Yeah. But as well as needing anti-submarine warfare capability, they need air defense mm. because they haven't got enough of them. Yeah. Because you had yeah. enough Hobarts when it was a world going to be wars of choice and everyone was going to be, be peaceful and sing Kumbaya and you don't need you needed the defense on paper. When you need the defense in reality, I'm sorry, free is not enough. It's kind of like Britain's finding six is not enough. Mm. And no, there was some very frank like discussion going on about that as well. Yeah, look, you know, I mean, it's um, every nation I'm sure is, is, is suffering. With that, you know what? How much bang do you get for your buck versus how much bang you need? And um, uh, you know, I guess that complicates matters an awful lot, doesn't it? When it comes to the engineering, <laughs> it's basically you've taken a very good anti-submarine warfare design and you're trying to crack in. And the, uh, this was one of the jokes going on is that the uh, <clears throat> uh, the let, let's put it this way: the other builders of the team are Type Twenty Six. One of the might have jokes, uh, uh, what you need, boys, is to actually buy the uh, buy our version rather than the version you're trying to build. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting listening to them because, again, one of the things that comes through is the engines, the power supplies and the power systems yeah, are scalable. Right. No, they're scalable. But right. the trouble is the government doesn't want to give them the money to scale them up. The whole system is designed to be scalable and have yeah. it, and they need to they need to increase the whole size a bit and scale and put in more power. They can it's do like that. A, That's like on the table to do, but it's the government won't get. We'll give them the money for more missiles to be crammed into the same hole, but won't give them the money for the. Like I said months ago, we we were inventing a whole new concept, built with but not for. Mm. Yes. And it's the thing is the Type Twenty Six. When you realise that there are, and this was something interesting to talk about again. There, we know, of course, there being two holder shaping, a whole, whole, whole uh, points, right? There's the one which is being used for the town, cl- city class, and the hunter class, and there's one being used for the CSC. Do you know there's another one bigger than that that nope, they've all designed as part of the same system? <laughs> Hmm? I said no, but I'm sure it costs more. Naturally, it costs well, the more thing is, 
I know people like to say steel and air are cheap. And the gentleman from <clears throat> Atmos was very key, uh, keen about not saying steel and air are cheap because he doesn't think he should, uh, he should have to pay and actually build the ships to be optionally crewed because, frankly, they don't need to be. He finds it absurd. He has to put in away space on crew support when they don't need it. This is the U U USB people, which I, I did love. It was He was very, very nice. Um, a real superstar to chat with. Um, next time we uh, ne next year we have promised to take Mrs. Drack with us because he wants to meet her. Um, but for a for a crude ship or optionally crude ship, especially at the crude censorship, steel and air are cheap. And if you've got the steel, you've got the space uh, steel and air. You've got the space to displace the air and put other stuff in there. And what you need to put in there is power and if you want to carry the weapons this is the thing if you want to do if you think about the difference between the csc and the the type the city class and the hunter class if you go that step up again from the csc you pretty much are talking a very heavy frigate but it's a frigate which has got all its uh, working out so it sounds fine everything for the hull you've got the space and it's interestingly it's enough, enough it's got enough electricity to run its radars and its anti-submarine equipment um and potentially in the future slapping on that laser based uh, air defense system and here is the really interesting thing i want to give you jane right so i was sitting there going why have they where's this come from so you've probably heard some rumors about bae are going to expand their yard where they're building the Type LA, 26. Right. Yes, yeah, well, they're going to build a cover yard. and build it. Build it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I looked at that design and thought, that's quite long. It's not quite long enough for our Type 83 design, but it's quite long, that construction yard they're going to build. You know what it is long enough for? Extend, the extended Type 26. Mm. Yeah, the one which is bigger than even the CSE. Sounds like it's sounds like it's uh, far too rational to make sense in a uh, budget-driven democracy. Well, it's a very easy way of increasing of increasing the status of your navy without having to buy more hull, uh, buy more ships, or invest in more people, isn't it? Mm. Super frigates. Yeah. Well, I guess we can only wait and see. We'll see what the next batch are like. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure where we're at in terms of design finalizations and everything. I thought it was fairly well advanced. That was why the alarm bells were ringing. That uh, you couldn't, if you turned on the power, you'd blow the the, the, uh, the fuses. So. Well, again, it's the, the the problem is they're basically the design is very advanced, and it, I, I agree it is incredibly advanced, but. The, the options are still uh, the options are there and worked out to an advanced level because they paid for them to be worked out to an advanced level. Uh, it is a case of we have this design, we can plug it in, but you have to be prepared to pay for it. Um, the thing, other thing I got through there was there is a lot of there are a lot of people searching to try and get who still believe this idea you can get defense on a cheap and you can. But the trouble is what they're comparing in prices when you're buying the levels of what you're buying in World War II. 
there is cost is brought down in quantity. If you're not building enough quantity, you are not going to get that cost down. You're building a quality build rather than a quantity build. And this is really the problem. Especially, um, I, I say this, if you look at one of the costs that came through, I was, I was having this conversation with, actually I managed at one point while Drac was sitting in one of the talks, which he was very dutiful and went to all of them and was listening to them. Um, I was a bit more um, rude and judicious. Uh, um, I actually at one point was sat down with three officers, one from each, and having the conversation. And the strong impression I got, strong impression I got, was that you still have the scenario going that whilst the navies and to an extent the language has changed to we realize that these are not wars of choice anymore, that we are going to have to be prepared, that we are dealing with actors who may not have the same belief in the world system we do and may want to change it to conform to different views, which is not in our interests. The procurement and funding ideas haven't, but that still, Britain, thanks to its larger population and larger ongoing construction levels of ships, has a massive advantage over the other two in terms of costs. And when the costs compared to Britain, to the UK, it looks like Britain's getting a really good deal and you guys are getting stiffed. But the reason Canada and Australia look like that is because you're having to rebuild your industry pretty much from scratch. Mm -hmm. Because the Australians have allowed their industry to drop quite so much. You should almost have kept building Hobart class, ah. built a fourth and a fifth slowly. There was a lot so of that you would, that, yeah. to keep the yards going so they could be right. going to the type 26. You would I'm have sure been in a better were, position. I'm sure there were quite a few long lunches discussing that. Mm. Um, of course, as it's often the case with such long lunches, nothing productive tends to come out of them and uh, so therefore we have idle shipyards and uh, not to mention the submarine construction facilities that haven't been used now for eons. But this is, this is the thing, if you think about it, if you had built four, five, six of the Hobart slowly, keep the yard going, mm -hmm. you also then wouldn't have the pressure on the Type 26 program to suddenly become an air defence frigate as well as an anti-submarine warfare frigate, which would stop make it. that design a lot easier. Stop, stop this right now, this is, this is treason, you're talking sense. And this is the scenario you've got. This is the problems you're dealing with. This is the fact that we come down to this in build trumps quite so much. Oh, God, do we get it drummed into us in this one? And I'm not sure if Drac will agree, but there was so many people searching for a quick fix solution. And all the, really, none of the viable, the only viable solutions were all medium to long term that were being offered. The quick fix. The quickest fix there is the Arrowhead 140. It's the type, it's the Babcock one. Um, it's also the um, Damon Sigma multi-mission frigate, which is also, again, if I give you this, the, 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 they're sort of, um, they've got light corvettes and frigates, but they've got the proper full multi-mission frigate. 105 to 125 meters in length overall, 
14 to 70 meters beam, draft 3.7 to 4.8 meters. Displacement, 2,500 to 4,800 tons. Speed up to 27 knots, but that's not with a, a, that's without a vane being fitted. So who knows how fast it could get to if you had a vane. Uh, as accommodation, 120 to 160 people. Customers already buying it. Indonesian Navy, Mexican Navy. And it's a good looking ship. That's the Type 31. That and Type 31 are the big games in town. And the, the Arrowhead 140 and the concepts they're going to produce and what the Type 32 is going to be and uh, all these things. They're the big games. And, and honestly, I think the Type 32 is going to become a drone mothership. It's going to be a frigate, which is built entirely, a small light frigate built entirely around operating. What, what, do, we, what, do, you call, that, what do you call a um, drone carrier? We can't use frigate, we can't use destroyer. Can't use cruiser. Sloop. What sort of? Yeah, sloops. No, I think sloops too recent. Is there, is there anything else? Um, right, anyway, mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say if it, it depends if we're doing it as a pure, pure drone carrier or as we're just enhancing the drone carrying capabilities of existing vessels. Mm -hmm. It's, it's if primary we, role. It's drone, it's, if it's primary role, that primary role of drone carrier. Mm. Escort carrier. Mm. Drone carrier. But, so, uh, you know, I mean, I, at that I, point, I, you're ba it's basically in the same realm as the first Ark Royal and all those other sort of small seaplane carriers seaplane from carriers. the yeah. from the first. Drone I suppose it, yeah, it depends. If you if you're going to put it front front line, front and center with your frigates and destroyers, then you probably want to have something a bit more active. But if it's going to sit at the in the rear echelons, just sending drones out, you know, somewhere maybe around with the support ships or in the center of the group with a carrier, then yeah, drone tender might be the most appropriate term for it. But I just you know, the frigate has connotations any submarine warfare, just, you know, hmm. destroyer. You can't just call it the drone, a drone destroyer, or a drone frigate, or a, a drone well, no, the destroyer. drone destroyer is going to be the ship which is designed to destroy the drones. Of course, because you have to remember it's a torpedo boat destroyer which has become a destroyer. So yeah. you know it's going to go, or it could be drone boat, drone like boat. torpedo boat. Drone <laughs> boat. It, it, in in the in the wonderful world of anacronyms, you could call it a loss, a light offboard support <laughs> ship. <laughs> Like that. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh well. All right. So, well, Jamie, how much are you wishing you were there? Um, yeah. Look, these things are always fascinating. You know, um, likewise, I've been spending way too much time lurking around in the the um, display areas, and oh, you'd have had you'd have been mm. mobbed. Seriously, oh. the Royal mm. Australian Navy guys would have mobbed you. You'd have been you'd have been dragged off to drinking with them. We'd have not seen you for two yeah. days. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure they can teach me plenty of things. It was really nice and it was mm. really interesting, and we were, we were very pleased to be there. Yep. Uh, so you mentioned that you might be off to another one. Yeah, we we're, we're hoping to get into next year to go to next years of this one, and we're also hoping to get into Desi, the Defence Equipment Services Industry event up in London. Uh, when that comes around. And yeah, we're always happy to be invited and go to these things. 
Well, at least it helps. And we're, we're going to be happy because at least it helps ground our discussions a bit closer to reality than just being a couple of guys on the internet. Well, the, the thing is, we have that's one of the interesting things. Pretty much every yard we've talked about today, every builder has invited us to go see their yards. Um, I've chatted with the NVL guys. They've said they'd like us to go over to Germany and see their yards, etc. And I, I'm not. It's going to, of course, finances, etc. Depending. Uh, although, if they offered to pay for the cost of the trip, me and Drac would never complain. We'll see what happens. Uh, in return for us sorting out their archive, because NVL went, oh yeah, we've got an archive as well, which is also terrible, needs to be sorted out. And we're sort of going, uh, didn't don't you guys have the yards which used to build the German battleships? Yes. Uh, at which point I was holding on to Drac to stop him running to the planes again. <laughs> you can always auction your poodle. No. <laughs> oh, he's too cute to let go. Uh, yeah, he woke up uh, hearing archives, that. Archives, you know, that's the thing that gets a little bit me going. So mm. I, I, I expect you want to have to live stream a bilge pumps from their archive, surely. Yes, for you. For me. And you can yeah. hold up the, the, the <laughs> to see and, and I'll be hitting screen capture. Yeah. <laughs> Drac is actually now thinking this through. I think he's still back in the whole the, the whole doing a, a live from underwater thing, or he's doing a live from those German archives, or he's booking his flights to Germany as we speak. <laughs> One of the two, yes. Uh, it's um, yeah. It, I've got a lot of things on my plate, so it, it's rather interesting because I keep thinking I've got everything. Um, Balance. wonderfully sorted out time-wise and everything. And then like, oh, but now I have to go and do this, which means I'm going to be away from my PC for a week or two, which then means I have to start rushing everything else. So like today I'm having to do a pair of five-minute guides because I need to do one for the end of this coming this week and one for next week while we're being in Canada. And then mm-hmm. I've got to do uh, a dry dock for the week that we're in Canada. And I've got to do a Wednesday video for the week that I'm in Canada. <laughs> and I don't have Friday because Friday is obviously the day that we're going to be, uh, well, that I'm going to be flying out. Um, I fly on Thursday. And on top of that, uh, what else have we got to do? Fortunately, this week, the Wednesday video is a live stream. So fortunately, I don't have to worry about that. Best case scenario, since I'm coming back at stupid o'clock in the morning on uh, week Monday, ideally, I want to get a second Wednesday video done for the week I'm back whether or not that happens, that's probably the lowest of the priority lists. But I also have the fun, 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 fun joy of trying to record a Patreon dry dock in two and a half days. On top of everything else I just listed. I may be awake a little bit longer than normal. (laughs) I've just got to record four more videos. I've got got it down to four videos. I've got them written. I've just got to record them. If it was four, four regular videos, that would be fine. Minor each roughly seventy-five minute long video. So yes, they're, they're, they're going to be okay. That that will be fine for me. The yeah. Patreon dry dock alone is, yeah, it is. You see, this is why I have the Patreon set up as I do. So they have to vote for. They can all submit mm. questions, but they have to vote for which ones I do, mm. and they get I'm, a PowerPoint presentation on it. I'm, I may end. I may. The I know that I, makes less money, but it does allow me to be sane. Yes. Yeah, the, the other thing I've realised is, of course, we're going to be in Canada on our subscriber meal on Saturday the 4th, which is when I would normally do the live Patreon um, alternate history live stream that accompanies the Patreon dry dock. So I may either have to move that to Saturday the 11th and do it live from Canada 
if the internet's working, or I may have to do it mid-month. We'll just have to see. Or, and this is going to be a suggestion which we're going to, we can consider and talk about, but I'll put it out there for Bullish Pump so people can listen to it before we go away. How about we see if we can't set up a little live from the meal? And we chat away, we have people chatting away with us while we're doing it live, and we're, uh, we're, we'll do it sort of as a bit of a hello. We're that would be chaos, and there would almost certainly be maple syrup on my computer by the end of it. <laughs> but we can have a go. We can do it by the phone. Because I've got the I've got all the system set up on my phone. Why don't Why don't you just actually enjoy the event <laughs> and, and and exploit the contacts you make thereafter of said uh, broadcast? Well, yeah, um, uh, we have got so we've got some interesting from our thing last time. We've got some interesting Canadian Navy contacts who are going. Do you want to go see this and that in Halifax? And we're sort of going. We technically only have two days there. Well, your, your, your two o'clock until four o'clock slot in the morning is clear. But we do have all day after we fly in where we don't technically have anything going on on the day we fly in because we're flying in at crack of dawn in the morning because that's the only time we can get the flight. So it's a case of... Right. So anyway, either which way, yeah. bilge pumps might be a bit late next week. Yes. I think we just bypass it and make make everyone uh, hang on in, in suspense. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we call you up because we're both suffering from, um, how do I put this, uh, jet lag and go, we're going to record it now because we're awake. Anyway, we shall enough. see. And uh, yeah, right. see you all later. Wonderful okay. listeners from different parts of the world. Hope you've enjoyed it, and thank you for meeting all of you. We really did enjoy it last week. We had a lot of fun meeting everyone who supported us, and we do promise next time to do our best to bring Jamie along in some form, <laughs> even if we have to have a giant cardboard version of him. <laughs> I, I can organise it for you. All right. Bye. 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 Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>